I'm Kathy Harrelson, and I am glad to be here with you today at Women in the Word. And I'm excited that we get to talk about a passage in James chapter 2. I'm not sure about you, but as we've been reading through James, I've been reminded of how differently at times I think about things than God does or that James does. Certainly, it's pointed out my sin and how my heart is inclined toward different things. At times, James brings up things that sometimes I just don't want to talk about, but I need to talk about, like suffering and trials. But it's also reminded me how differently James thinks and how differently God thinks by how absolutely beautiful the world is if we all lived out what the book of James says. Can you imagine what it would be like? I've been mesmerized the past couple of weeks thinking about how different it would be if we all lived with no favoritism or no partiality. So while this different sometimes is challenging for me, it is also incredibly beautiful. And there's been a part of me that's wondered, you know, we started James with all these commands right off the bat. And what, what's going on here? Where did all this come from? What unites all of this? Why are we supposed to be doing this? And where does the power come from that we can actually accomplish it? If you have had any of those questions, this passage in James is going to answer them for us and is the foundation for the whole book of James. I don't know about you, but as I was reading through this passage, I have to admit that at moments there were some tricky concepts or use of some phrases for me. You may have read it and easily thought, oh, this makes perfect sense. James wants us to live out our faith. Or there may have been moments when you thought, I'm a little bit confused. If you are like that, you are not alone. Throughout church history, there have been some individuals who have said that James and Paul, who was an apostle who wrote some of the letters in the New Testament, that somehow they are saying different things. To be honest, they are not. And we are going to see that clearly today. However, I have put at the top of your outline a really important verse from Paul. Number one, so we can see that Paul and James are definitely not saying different things. But also, if you get confused, you can go back to this and be reminded of what the truth is that God is saying to us in the book of James. Read with me Ephesians 2, starting in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. I am not perfect. No one is perfect. None of us has a relationship with God based on what we do. I'm a sinner, and the only way I can be forgiven and have a relationship with Jesus Christ is simply by faith in the fact that Jesus died on the cross and was raised again. That is the basis of our salvation. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. We're not saved by what we do, but something happens after we're saved. And James talks about it and Paul talks about it here. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. After we are saved, we are given a living faith and that faith is fleshed out in our actions. And we are gonna see that in the book of James. So start with me at James chapter two, starting in verse 14. 
And you may notice right away why there is a little bit of confusion, because he's going to start off by using this word faith in a different way than he does in the second half of this passage, and kind of differently than Paul does. So listen real carefully as we walk through this, and we're going to see some definitions of this word faith that are important for us as we go forward. Starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? You're going to see this theme that James clearly mentions several times in what we just read. In verse 17, he says, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. In verse 20, we see that faith apart from works is useless. And in verse 26, which we haven't read yet, but we will, he repeats that and says, faith apart from works is dead. So clearly there is something very concerning to James that he does not like, and he is going to talk to us about it. I've given a definition on your outline. Read that with me. It is a type of dead, useless faith. When I reference that faith on your outline, I put it in quotation marks so you can distinguish for the type of faith that we're going to talk about in the second half of this passage. In the verses we just read, James talks about a faith with no trust in or love for God. It fails to produce good God-honoring works. This is a faith with no trust in God or love for him, and it fails to produce good God-honoring works. He's not talking about the fact that sometimes I fail in sin. He's not talking about the fact that I may go through a long season of disobedience. You may have heard a phrase like Colonel Christian. He is not talking about that. He is talking about someone who does not and never has had a love for or trust in God. Our tendency when we read passages like this and really throughout the book of James Sometimes we're real quick to apply it to ourselves, and sometimes we start to judge and look at other people and try to evaluate them. And in this passage specifically, may I encourage us to let the Holy Spirit handle everyone else and let us look at ourselves and see what the Lord wants to teach us specifically through this passage. So this dead, useless faith, what might it look like? may look like a variety of things, but James gives us a couple of examples. Look in verse 14 with me. If someone says he has faith, someone says I have faith, but then when there's an opportunity to help someone in need, a brother or sister who needed food and clothing, they just kind of wish them well and send them on their way and don't help. They say they have faith, but there's no actions. Read with me also in verse 19, you see that it says, you believe that God is one. That is actually referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. You will see that on your verse sheet where it says, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. It is this God. There is only one God. He is the powerful one. And the demons even believe that in the sense that they believe that that is a fact about God. The dead, useless faith may know some correct facts about God, but they don't have any love or trust for him. On your outline, I've written a flippant verbal expression of faith, saying you have faith, or knowledge of correct facts about God, but there's no love, there's no trust, and there's no obedience. That is cause for concern. Let me see if I can illustrate this at least a little bit. I could say to you, I like beets. I could tell you some facts about beets. You can roast beets, you can peel beets, you can grill beets, you can make beets a variety of ways. Also, you may not know this, but 88% of raw beetroot is water and only 1% is fat. Now, if you were to walk around with me, let me tell you about what you would see in my relationship with beets. I do not order beets at restaurants. I have no beet recipes. I'm not asking you for a beet recipe. I don't want you to give me any beets. One of my most panicked memories on a mission trip, I was traveling to Latvia. I love Latvia. I've been several times. You should all go. It's wonderful. But I'm very committed on the mission field that if someone from another culture offers me food that's important to them, I need to be sure to eat it. And on my first trip, I found out that a delicacy and something that is served often in Latvia is cold beet soup. I began to feel a little bit of a gag in my throat when I heard that, and I still kind of feel it now. Now, I've told you that I like beets, and I told you some facts about beets. But do any of you think I have any genuine affection for beets? You don't, do you? Now, let's talk about chocolate. I could tell you that I like chocolate. I could tell you some facts about chocolate. You can have milk chocolate or dark chocolate. You can put it in mousse or pies or cookies or a drink. You can make a variety of things with chocolate. You actually may not know this, but 60% of cocoa is actually from West Africa. Now, I've told you that I like chocolate, and I've told you some facts about chocolate. So let me tell you about my life with chocolate. I do buy chocolate at the store. I order chocolate at restaurants. If you have a good chocolate recipe, I need for you to email it to me this week, and I will probably be making it. I've worked at Christ Chapel a long time, and I have to tell you, I know where every secret stash of chocolate is on this entire campus. I know the people who at their desk have the bowls. We don't go by the ones that have mints in them. I know where the ones are that the people put chocolate in. Do you think that I have a love and affection for chocolate? I do. You can tell that I actually like chocolate by the way I live. So just saying you like something and knowing some facts about it doesn't mean you have a genuine affection for it. And when you do, James is reminding us it can and should tell in the way that we act. So what is this experience of like, perhaps like, for someone that has a dead and a useless faith? Look at me and with me in verse 14. What good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? 
He asks a rhetorical question, and that question is, can that faith save him? And he's expecting the answer to be no. Without genuine faith, someone is lost and stuck in sin with no salvation or eternal life. There is a great cost that comes with this dead and useless faith. Keep reading with me in verse 20, and you'll see that James describes this faith as useless. It is useless for things that matter. It should not surprise us that James does not like this type of faith because from the very beginning, he has wanted our faith to be lived out and he has wanted it to be useful. And a dead, useless faith with no works misses all of these opportunities that James has been giving to us. Remember a few weeks ago when Lynn talked about having a relationship with God, running to God, make God the goal of your journey was one of our applications. James wanted us to have the opportunity to honor our glorious God. And yet if you have a dead faith with no action, you miss the opportunity to honor God. If you have a dead faith with no action, you miss the opportunity that Benita gave us that following week by showing a passion for God's word, by not just being a hearer, but a doer. A dead faith with no works misses that opportunity. A dead faith with no works misses the genuine care and concern that we are supposed to have for other people. Shelley talked about that last week with us trying to treat people as all equally valuable and not showing favoritism or partiality. A dead, useless face misses all of these opportunities. And then look with me in verse 19. The demons believe they know correct facts about God, but they shudder in his holy presence. They are and should be terrified of God. Those of us who may have a dead, useless faith, unfortunately, we are enemies of God, and we can and should be afraid. Living as an enemy of God foregoes a peaceful relationship with him and instead shudders in his holy presence. James also in verse 20 describes this as a foolish person. You've been hearing multiple times mentioned that in some ways James looks a lot like Proverbs. And this to me is a way that James is mirroring Proverbs because in Proverbs it constantly talks about a fool and a foolish way to live. And James has just described an incredibly foolish way to live. The reality is that I once had this dead, useless faith, and it did not save me. It's not like every minute of my life was miserable, but overall, it was. I had no salvation. I was not living out a genuine faith in the way that I should, and there were moments that I was absolutely terrified before a holy God, and I should have been. I now have a living faith because of the gift of God to give it to me and save me, not because of anything I have done, but simply by his grace. Those with a dead, useless faith should ask God like I did for a salvation and a genuine faith in him. You can be just sitting right where you are right now and realize I am a sinner and I'm not holy and I can't have a relationship with God. The only way for me to be forgiven 
is believing that Jesus died on the cross and was raised again. And just like I did, you can ask God for a living faith, even right now, and he will give it to you. And you, along with me and those else in the room, can walk into this next half of James knowing we can live with the wisdom of Proverbs and the wisdom of James as we see extreme contrast to what we saw in the first half of this passage, we're going to see the face, the way that some of us are used to hearing it referenced. We're going to see it lived out. And we're going to see some of the whys and the hows that we actually live this out, especially in the book of James. So head with me to the next part of James, starting in James chapter 2. We're going to read about this genuine living faith. But before we do, I want to read on the outline the definition or description we're working with here, which you're going to see a whole lot of contrast to what happened at the beginning of James 2. Genuine faith exhibits trust in and love for God that overflows in good, loving, faithful action. Genuine faith exhibits trust in and love for God that overflows in good, loving, faithful action. And we're going to see that through the examples of Abraham and Rahab. Read with me in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was complete along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as a body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. We read in the scriptures the story of Abraham. Years previous to this, God calls him and says, I want you to come out and go to another country, and I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. But years pass, and Abraham has no kids. And he wonders, how am I going to be the father of a great nation? I don't have any heirs. And he has a discussion with God, and God promises him this son, and that he will indeed be a father of a great nation. And in James 2.23, it quotes what you see in Genesis 15, 6 on your verse sheet. It says, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord and God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. He believed the Lord. And then at the beginning of Hebrews 11, we see Abraham acts by faith. James and Paul do not think anything different. They think the very same thing. They think it starts with faith with a living faith in God. It started that way for Abraham. It was going to start that way for Rahab. But then something happens as a result of that faith. What happens afterwards, Abraham believes God, but sometimes when we read about Abraham or Rahab or people in the Bible, we begin to think of them as superhuman and we don't connect with them very well. So just so you know, Abraham was not perfect. I could tell you a variety of stories one of which is that he and Sarah decide it's going to be a good idea to help God fulfill this promise. So Abraham should go marry someone else along with Sarah, commit bigamy, and have a child. 
he comes up with a very imperfect way to respond to this situation. This is not the way God fulfills his promise, but I need for you to know that Abraham, this person we're reading about, like us, isn't perfect in sins, but he does trust God, and his faith is not perfect, but it is genuine. So what happens is finally God provides this son. He provides Isaac after a number of years. He's going to be the fulfillment of all of these promises. And then God says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. I want you to trust me with him. Read what he does in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, through whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking he did. God provides a ram, a lamb for the sacrifice. And read with me, stay on your verse seat in Genesis 22, what God says to Abraham as he's willing to sacrifice and trust God with his son. God says to Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For how I know that you fear God. Well, God knew that before. So what is he trying to emphasize? What is he talking about? Look at that next word, seeing. God saw, Abraham saw. We all see that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. We see that faith lived out. And I want you to see specifically what was it that Abraham was thinking about? What was it about God and his faith in him that was in his mind as he is walking through and wrestling through this situation? Read with me in Genesis 22, 8 on your verse sheet. Before God provides the sacrifice, when Abraham is walking this by faith, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. He believed in God's character and he believed in God's provision specifically. And then after God provides the sacrifice, look at verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. He specifically believed God and God's character and he chose to act on it. Now, having listened to that story and understanding what James is referencing, let's go back to James chapter 2 and look at some of these verses and see what it is that James is trying to emphasize for us. Look in verse 22. You see that faith was active along with his works. Well, yeah, we saw that. Abraham's faith was active and so was his works. And faith was completed by his works. What is he talking about there? A few weeks ago, when Lynn was talking to us about trials and suffering, she talked about how God wants to make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And she described that and defined that for us as spiritual maturity. God wants spiritual maturity for us. It's this same word and idea here. Misty is actually going to talk about it next week in James chapter 3. Spiritual maturity is a theme. This faith of Abraham was being matured, it was being lived out, and it could be seen. This is what James is pointing to, the spiritual maturity seen and completed and viewed in Abraham by his works. Now look with me in verse 21 and verse 24, we're going to see another phrase, 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works? And then in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What is he saying there? Remember, he was not interested in that dead, useless faith that just sat by itself and didn't do anything. He was interested in a faith that wasn't alone off by itself, that it was actually being fleshed and lived out. He was interested in this justification, this righteousness, this salvation being seen in our lives, being seen in the lives of believers lived out. That is why he is pointing to Abraham. Abraham had faith, and that salvation was seen, that maturity was seen in the way he lived it out. That is what James is talking about. Look with me on your outline. I want to read this very carefully because I picked these words carefully to remind us what James is talking about. An authentic faith, not a fake one, not a dead one, not a useless one, an authentic living faith. And by faith, we mean trust in and love for God. It's not a perfect one, but it's genuine and real. And that's a faith in God, not in yourself, not in the universe, not in anything else. An authentic faith in God, it moved Abraham and it moves us toward spiritual maturity. Our visible works exhibit a love for and trust in God, even with our most precious earthly gifts. I want to point out one more thing in verse 23. I'm calling it the chocolate part of this passage because it was my favorite part. Um, I love how James calls Abraham a friend of God. That is mind-blowing to me, that Abraham got to be a friend of God. But what's even more mind-blowing is that anyone with living faith, given to them by grace, which means me, can be a friend of God. Look with me at John 15 on your verse sheet. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I've heard from my Father I have made known to you. Life with an undeserved, wonderful friendship with our gracious God is rich and it is joyful. It is mind-blowing to me that I, me, I am not important or special at all, and I get to be friends with the God of the universe. Remember how Lynn talked about how God is holy and purposeful and wise and good? I, I get to be friends with him. That is insane to me. Demons shudder in God's presence, and they should. I don't shudder when my friends walk in the room. I love their smiles. I love their character. I love who they are. They bless my life. I get to know and spend time with them and enjoy them. And I get to do that with the God of the universe. That is what a living faith has given me and how it is fleshed out in my life. The sweetest thing happened yesterday. There's been something that's bothering me for several months. It wasn't the worst thing ever, but it was more than a level one bother. And I hadn't told anyone about it. And I, it was really bothering me yesterday afternoon. And I got a text from a friend who had no idea. And she said some encouraging words, which was very kind. And I thanked her for them. But what she didn't know was that my friend God was sending me a text through her because it was absolutely addressing that thing that was bothering me that literally no one on the earth knew about but me. 
And I got tears in my eyes thinking about this kind friend God and how I and how you and we get to be friends with him and live out this faith and walk with him. What an incredible, amazing joy that is. I'm going to step back for a minute because I was one of the ones when I stepped into this passage, I had a lot of questions and I read for hours and loved it. I love studying. It's kind of me. And there are some hard parts for sure. And there's some smart people who would nuance some things a little bit differently than I would. And that's okay. We would agree on the main points. That's all right. But I remember after spending a number of hours in that, I remember where I was standing in my house when it kind of struck me and rubber met the road and I realized what I had been doing. Because when I read the first part of James and the person with the dead, useless faith doesn't even care at all about someone who's hungry or needy. And I don't care perfectly about the hungry or needy and I'm not implying that poverty is easily fixed by any stretch of the imagination. But I realized that what I was writing in my head, which was not what was in the text, was and someone with a living faith gives food to someone who's needy. And they should. But that felt like a bar that, you know, a good bit of the time I could meet. And then all of a sudden it struck me, the example that James was giving to me was Abraham. And Abraham was called, that faith pushed him to trust God with his only son, with the earthly gift that was the most precious to him. And at that moment I realized, oh, James knows I need some more spiritual maturity (laughs) James knows I need some growth because that is hitting me where it is supposed to hit me. And even last week in one of our Women in the Word small group discussions that I was in, someone made this comment, and I called her this week, and she said I could share it. We were talking about how sometimes not walking with favoritism and partiality is difficult, and it was, when is that difficult? And she said, you know, oftentimes I'm pretty good at being gracious to people and seeing where they come from and not treating them with partiality or favoritism. Overall, I'm pretty good at that. Until that person starts to impact my kid or someone I really love. And then not walking with partiality and favoritism reaches a whole new level. And that's what James is pushing us forward, isn't it? You know, there are moments that I realize how hard it is. And then there are moments that I remember back to when I had a dead, useless faith, when I was defining my own identity, living my own truth. And I'm not saying every moment was miserable, but overall it was. And the world and the peace that God has given me in a living faith and in living this out is far better. And it's not just better for me, but it is a far more beautiful, wonderful place for all of us to live in when we walk and live out that faith. It's not just Abraham that makes a significant sacrifice. So does Rahab. We read about that in verse 25 and go over to your verse sheet to Hebrews 11. As we read about Rahab, we see that she makes her actions for the same reason that Abraham does. She has faith by faith. So what is Rahab's story? She's described as a prostitute. And at this specific time, God is fulfilling a promise to the nation of Israel. He has promised him a land. Rahab and some others are living in this land, and it comes time for God to give his people, the nation of Israel, that land. Joshua is the leader of the nation at that time, and so he sends out some spies 
to see what's going on in the land to some of the evil and disobedient people who live there, and they are going to have to go to battle to get that land that God is giving to them. Those spies find themselves in danger when the king in that land hears that they're there and he wants them and their lives are at risk. And he comes to Rahab or spies come to Rahab and they ask for her help at great cost to herself. To our knowledge, she doesn't know them or have necessarily any relationship or affection for them specifically, but they need her help. And what does she do? She risks her life welcomes them and sends them out by another way to spare their lives. A living faith calls Rahab and us into loving, useful service that benefits the lives of others. If you and I were living out all we were reading in James, the people around us would benefit greatly. Our lives would be useful in that way. Read with me the rest of Hebrews eleven thirty one, 31, and we see what Rahab did. Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given the spies a friendly welcome. Rahab was not perfect, just like Abraham was not perfect, but she had a genuine faith. And I love that in Joshua, God tells us what specifically Rahab was thinking about. Where was her faith? Where was her trust? What did she know about God? Read with me Joshua 2, 11. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She believed this God was powerful enough and able to spare her life and the life of her family, and he does. Both Abraham and Rahab, I made a point of telling you that they were not perfect because, again, they are an example to us. I am not perfect. They are not perfect. But their faith was genuine. They genuinely knew God, and they genuinely trusted God, not perfectly, but it was genuine, and they acted on it. James describes in the first part of the passage we've read a dead faith that is useless, and he describes a living faith that is useful, that honors God, shows a passion for his word, and we see good works lived out in people's lives. So what does that look like for us or what can it look like for us as we want to walk with a living faith? Well, the first thing I put down there makes me smile and that is this. Would you walk constantly with your friend God, enjoying and depending on his spirit? Enjoy him. Yes, James wants us to do a whole bunch of things and we should, but we are meant to do it with a friend. My friends do benefit my life, but you know what? I just enjoy them. I enjoy my friends. They are wonderful. And as I spend time with my friend God, I get to depend on his spirit to live out the things that he wants us to do. I cannot do it by my own. I have no power in and of myself. But Romans 8 on your verse sheet tells us where this life is. And where this power comes from. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Walk with God, enjoy him, and depend on your spirit, his spirit, to do exactly what you thought this application point was going to be. Obey fully 
the scriptures and all the good work that God commands and gives you to do. He has likely given you a variety of things, but since we are all here studying James, may I remind us that I could spend the rest of my life trying to live out James and still not quite have mastered it yet. So we have a lot of things in front of us to obey that we need God's Spirit's help with, don't we? Specifically last week in one of our group discussions of Women in the Word, I got to be in two different groups last week, and we were talking about um, partiality and favoritism, and someone talked about, she was like, it's all over the workplace. And we talked about how hard it was to have wisdom and to know how to not live with partiality in the workplace. We have the holidays coming up, don't we? There are people with our family and our friends that we, if we admit it, are more partial to than others. How are we thinking about how James and what he wants us to do will impact us in the coming months? The third thing is, remember the grace extended to Abraham, Rahab, and us. Abraham, Rahab, nor me were saved by anything we did. This whole process started with grace. You will mess up. I will mess up. I will need forgiveness. Go back to God for grace. Remember grace as it guides and empowers you as well. And ask God to grow your trust in him. Pursue things that fuel your faith and your love for him. We see it's that faith and knowledge of God that motivates us and enables us to live out these good works. What are those things that you need to grow in? How can you mature in your faith and in your actions? That is what James is pushing us towards. We've seen in James, in this passage, the foundation. It is grace through faith that makes us alive, and we live it out in our actions. That is what James is about. That is why we are doing it, to honor God, to help other people. He has made it incredibly clear, and we get to do it with a friend. And his name is God, and there is no better friend and no better way to live. Pray with me. God, I cannot believe that I get to be your friend and that everyone sitting here with a living faith gets to be your friend. I pray that if there's anyone like me who is here today that has a dead, useless faith, that was me at some point, would you give them a living faith and salvation? And would you give the rest of us who've received a living faith simply by grace the ability, the strength, and the joy to know you more, trust you more, live out that faith and actions? And I pray that we would enjoy you and depend on your spirit as we do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray.